This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be a host today. Today, we'll be talking to Dennis Duncan about the new book, Index, A History of the A Bookish Adventure. Perfect for book lovers, a delightful history of the wonders to be found in the humble book Index revealing its vast role in our evolving literary and intellectual culture, Duncan shows that for all of our anxieties about the age of search, we are all index rakers at heart, and we have been for 800 years. Well, Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So I'd like to start by asking, uh, how has this pandemic influenced you and your work? And at this stage in a pandemic, what is your new normal? Gosh, well, it, it looks um, fairly similar to, to before the pandemic now. Um, uh, as of a day or so ago, we've gone back to teaching in real life, lecturing, tutorials, seminars, all types of university teaching are now happening on campus. And with the exception of lectures, where you have, you know, 100 or so people in a room, um, tutorials, one-to-one teaching and seminar teaching, small group teaching, have been back to... Back to normal, albeit with with masks and open windows and, and things like that, for the last term, really. So, um, so things have gradually be, be, been kind of getting back to normal. Of course, lots of people are off um, with uh, with the virus. Although, since Christmas, since since Omicron, that hasn't sort of struck fear into into our hearts the way it it used to before. And are you back to face to face conferences? No. Um, the, the, there are some going on, but I haven't been to any yet. Um, and in fact, the, the next conference I'm going to, I think, is the Canadian Society of Indexes, uh, which was going to be uh, in, in glorious Newfoundland, which I would love to see um, just on the uh, uh, western, you know, the eastern coast of uh, Canada. But instead, I'll, I'll be speaking um, from, from where I'm speaking to you now in a tiny room in the loft of a house in North London. So that's a shame. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yes, my name's Dennis Duncan. I am a lecturer in English literature at uh, UCL, University in London, in England. Um, And I've written a book called Index, a history of the, um, which is, uh, as the title suggests, a history of the book index, going back to um, its uh, invention in, in the uh, Middle Ages and coming right forward to to the way that we use search engines, which are essentially indexes um, in our in our 21st century moment. And how did you get interested in the literature? Gosh, well, I think I was always that 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 kid at school who who was going to do a um, an English literature degree and so on. You know, it, it was just something that that from my sort of teenage years had grabbed me. I come from quite a um, sort of well-read family. 
Um, and then when I was a teenager, I was always that kid who was quite easy to buy Christmas presents for because you'd just get me whatever the the, the, the latest um, bestseller or what, what novel that was up for the Booker Prize um, was. And then I went to university in, in Manchester in England to do an English literature degree. Then uh, th th there is a problem with English literature degrees in, in the sense that they can sometimes educate the enthusiasm out of you. You become very good at reading in a certain kind of way but less excited about um, doing it. And I think that was my experience, that after a, a degree and a master's in English, I'd had enough. And so I took up jobs in offices. I, I was a fast typist, so I became a, a typist and secretary um, and then worked in, in offices in, in the city of London. I taught myself to be a computer programmer. And then round about the time when I was 30, I thought, I now have a passion for reading again I have a vocation I think I will go back and do a PhD a doctorate in literature so starting starting at the age of 30 trouble is once you already have a career and a mortgage and a family um, changing lanes if you like is 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 uh, it's a difficult process you have responsibilities you, you can't just uh, drop everything uh, um, to, to, to mix my metaphor it's a bit like doing a, a u-turn in an oil tanker you know it's it's possible but it's a very slow circle so the only universities that i could do my phd at were one called the open university and one called birkbeck in london where all of the teaching happens at night so you can combine it with a job um so i carried on doing my day job and then in the evenings i would go for uh supervisions learning to do my phd um and that took about seven years so that was a long, <laughs> long, long process to uh, to kind of get back into literature professionally. That's a great way to get re-excited about that uh, literature. Well, I think I do think it's important. I, I do. Uh, um, there are lots of people. I think maybe this is very unfair, but there are lots of people who do PhDs. They go to school, then they do a degree, then they do a master and masters, and they do a PhD. And the reasoning. I suspect in some of these cases is really just because they can't think of anything else to do. Um, people are just sort of addicted to school, if you like, rather than uh, rather than sort of feeling it as a vocation. Um, PhDs, as you might know, have a relatively high dropout rate compared to undergraduate degrees. For a start, because they're a lot harder. You do them at, at a point in life when you're starting to things are starting to make demands of you, and uh, yeah, unless you really feel it unless you have a passion unless you know what uh, this is the thing that you want to do you really do risk becoming one of those statistics I sometimes uh, I know of people who are casting about for what PhD should I do and I think if you're asking yourself that you've already got the the cart before the horse as we say in this country you've got things the wrong way round. it needs to be something that uh, grabs you that is a passion I'm really glad that you touch upon uh, this uh, topic, especially as in UK, uh, they're called the mature students, people returning to higher education. And I'm actually one, one of them as well. So what kind of a, a encouragement uh, can you give to people considering perhaps requalifications? Well, I suppose one thing is that um, I had an anxiety as I was doing it, especially as I was starting a, a career after my PhD, that I was a decade or so um, older than other people and, and there's one way of looking at that where you feel you're a decade or so behind um, which in a way doesn't make sense but that that is how you can feel sometimes and that I think isn't true that the skills um, that that one's learned in in one's earlier life in one's earlier career um, are are useful there's, there's a sort of a, <laughs> I don't know the, uh, a capacity for putting things in perspective for, for, for being sort of calm about the, the crises because you know when, when you've raised kids um, you know that then uh, handing in an essay late produces much less of a crisis than it does um, so I think that, that that's um, my experience is that you can catch up if you like that that you're not you're not behind the the other people who uh, that, who came straight through um it's easy to, to to slip into it and and there are all sorts of um skills that you don't even think of as skills but um just uh perspectives ways of seeing that are, that are very useful that that you have from from life experience so you bring a lot of enthusiasm into your new book index a history of the a bookish I adventure hope so. thank you yes <laughs> 
<laughs> so how did you come to writing it? Okay, there's a couple of couple of ways that I came to write to it. Both really take place in the university environment. One is that um, during my PhD, and my PhD took a long time, took seven or eight years. Um, during that, um, I started to teach at the university. This happens to, to most PhD students. You um, get some opportunities to um, to teach. So I was teaching quite a long time. Um, and then at some point, uh, maybe about seven or eight years ago, what always used to happen is I'd run an English literature class like this. We'd, we'd have a set text. Let's say it's Mrs. Wolf, Virginia Wolf, Mrs. Dalloway. And everyone's got a copy. You've got a room full of students. And you say, OK, everyone turn to page 30 of Mrs. Dalloway. And some students turn to page 30. Um, and some students put their hand up and they go, oh, I haven't got the right edition. I've got uh, a different edition. What page is it in my edition? And so on, when you spend a couple of minutes trying to get everybody on the same page, so to speak. And that was my experience for years as I was teaching. But about seven or eight years ago, the question changed very slightly. I'd still say everybody turned to page 30 in the uh, in your Mrs. Dalloway. Um, but people put their hands up and they go, what does the passage start with? Not what page is it, but what does the passage start with? Because they were using e-readers, they were looking it up on, on a tablet or on their phone or um on a computer and i thought that's interesting that's a slightly different take on the question so i say what paragraph starts with and they can tap it in and they can find the place nice and quickly um and it struck me that where once each book would have to have its own index you write a book then somebody has to index that book and that index belongs to that book we have a new thing when we're working with digital documents, when we're working with PDFs or websites or something, where we can just click Control F. And as long as you know, what's the, what does the quote start with? What's the string that I'm looking for? The index is already there. You don't have to have an indexer to do that. The index has been sort of abstracted from the text and is now part of the device, if you like, that uh, whether it's your Kindle or your tablet or your browser, or Adobe Acrobat Reader, there is a search function which can search any text that you're looking at in that, whether or not that text has been indexed. It's quite interesting the way that the index has been sort of abstracted into the software now. Um, the other thing that happened was I, uh, my PhD was actually about a group of avant-garde writers in France, a group called the Ulipo, founded in 1960 in Paris. Um, members have been Raymond Conneau, uh, Georges Perec, Italo Calvino, they take ideas from mathematics and see whether you can uh, apply them to literature. Georges Perec famously wrote the, the novel without the letter E called uh, La Dispression. Um, anyway, so I, I wrote a, a PhD about this group and afterwards I was still thinking about them and one day it occurred to me that um, a few of their novels have got indexes. Georges Perec's uh, novel, his, his masterpiece, La Vie Mode de l'Emploi, Modern I can't pronounce it today. His masterpiece novel, Life A User's Manual, uh, has an index. Actually, it has two indexes. And an American member of this group, a man called Harry Matthews, also wrote a novel with an index called um, The Sinking of the Odradec Stadium. And also Talo Calvino, his last novel is called uh, Mr. Palomar, and that's got a table of contents. So I thought, well, that's funny. What is it about this? Because, you know, novels don't have indexes. What is it about this group that has um, led them to produce narratives that, that that lend themselves easily to being indexed the way that the way that narratives usually aren't. Um, what is it about their approach to narrative that means that they should include indexes? I thought I'd write an article about that um, academic article, and I asked my colleagues, I "Just need to find out a bit more about indexes, the history of index. When did novels stop having indexes?" Uh, um, where should I look? And nobody knew. All of my colleagues, they directed me to Grafton's book on the footnote, for example, but nobody could point me to the history of the index, which I just assumed would be out there. Um, so uh, ultimately, I realised that there wasn't one and that I was going to have to fill the gap, that, that there was a, an academic service, I think, that I was going to provide by writing the, the history of the book index. So it's that couple of things, that, that, that idea is still sort of forming in my head, that something funny has happened to the way that we read or, or, or the way that texts are automatically indexed by um, the, dev the devices we read on nowadays and this thing that comes from the literary avant-garde why is it that some novels have indexes what's funny about these and the, the sort of confluence of those two things 
about seven years ago, uh, led me to to think, right, my next project is going to be history of the index. Then I was very lucky. I got some money from the British Academy um, and I got an office in the Bodleian Library in Oxford for three years and then a, a fellowship in Cambridge for a year, all, all of all of which was really designed to help me write this book. Um, so I think I had the intention that it was going to be a very, very niche academic book. Uh, it's very nice that you say that there's an enthusiasm um, coming through in the book because I didn't imagine it was going to be like that. I thought it was going to be a very small book for academic nerds who, who you know, that would sell 200 copies to, to academic libraries. Um, just to answer that rare question, um, when did novels stop having indexes? But as I went along, I was surprised that there was there was interest from publishers, um, not just academic publishers, but commercial pub publishers, people approaching me saying, oh, that thing you're doing on indexes, um, is that from a book? Have you decided where to publish that book? And so that never happens to academics. Academics are constantly sort of begging, chasing publishers, uh, seeing publishers as essentially kind of gatekeepers um, who have the power to uh, suppress their work, if you like. So the idea that people were asking me um, could we publish it, kind of blew my mind. And then the uh, arrangement of the book had to change. I thought, OK, well, if it's going to, to, to have a wider audience than I suspected, then I'm going to have to write it in a slightly different voice, that there will need to be a little bit more anecdote. I'll need to, to, to say a little bit more about the characters we're talking. For example, Robert Grosstest, the, the, one of the people who invents the index, you can't just say Robert Grosstest and assume either that you know who he is or that if you care, you'll go out and find it, find out about him for yourself. I'll need to sort of paint a little bit of a pen portrait of some of these people. So the book slightly changed voice um, because of, of the way that it was now going to be um, a trade book. Uh, but it, it didn't really change content. It was just it, it needed to be written in, in a slightly more engaging style. If you like, uh, I, I was kind of let off the leash. Um, for, for my actual enthusiasm uh, to be given free reign, because usually that's the thing that you suppress in academic writing. You try to make everything seem um, <laughs> kind of dry and objective. So it was nice. It was nice. It was fun to write, actually. Hmm. I, I saw the instant appeal, actually, of this topic, especially because most of us are familiar what well, index books and index, but we don't actually know anything about it. So let's delve into the story that you uh, tell in your book and let's start with the basics. How do you define, define index? Well, that's a really good question. I, I would say the most easy way to think about it is if you've used a search engine today, if you've, if you've used Google, um, what are we now? It's, it's what half past seven where you are, it's half past six where I am. I must have used Google several dozen times already today. Now, Google's engineers say that Google is an index. We should remember that when we type something into a search engine, it doesn't go off and search the internet. That would take forever. It searches the internet in the background all day, every day, and it puts the results, the words that it finds, into tables. So when you're searching Google, you're not searching the internet, you're searching Google's index of the internet. And I think that's really important. That, that so, so we, we all have this kind of direct experience of it. Whether or not we read old-fashioned books that have indexes at the back, we certainly have used one. We really sort of live, if you like, in the age of search, constantly looking things up. You know, I find it difficult to watch the telly without tapping, you know, what was he in? Who did he score for? Who did they play for? That kind of thing. Um, we have information constantly at our fingertips. And that's it's because we kind of live in in the age of the index, if you like. So the book is a sort of history of how do we come to to this moment. An index at its most basic, its most conceptual is um, is a table with two columns. An index allows you to locate the thing that you wouldn't know where to find it, if you like. Um, it really arises from what we could call a big data problem. If you have so much data originally, let's imagine that the Library of Alexandria the first time in the ancient world, there could be half a million books. How do you find the thing that you're looking for? Um, so there's something that you know is there, but you don't know how to find it. Um, the index is two columns. The column on the left, if you like, will be the column where you can locate, where you do know how to find the thing. Because if you know the name of the thing, it will be in an, or in an order that you know, usually alphabetical order. So as long as you know the order 
of the letters of the alphabet, then you can find the name of the thing that you're looking for without difficulty. And then alongside that in the other column will be a locator, a sort of index finger pointing to a location in the mass of data that we didn't know how to navigate. So an index is two columns, one that we do know how to navigate and one with location into the mass, allowing us to find the thing. Um, is that right? Does that give you a, a, a reasonable idea of, uh, of what it is? Now, in a book index, um, the, table, the, the column on the left will be alphabetical order, all the things you might want to look for in this book. The column on the right will be page numbers. Page numbers are a great example of a locator. A book could have a thousand pages, um, but it's very easy to find something on a single page. So if the index can tell you what page it's on, that's great. That's a relatively granular way of, of locating the information you're looking for. So, so how was index born? Who was the inventor inventor of it? That's a really good question. Um, it's one of those inventions that, that is invented twice at the same time. So a couple of other examples. I think the light bulb was invented uh, uh, twice uh, um, in two different two different places at the same time. Mathematical calculus is another one that was invented. The, the moment was so ripe for it that two different people had the... Um, the idea for it in different places. Now, the index, we're talking about round about the year 1230, so the start of the 13th century, and we're talking about Paris and Oxford, two different people. One, um, the uh, uh, the head of a friary, uh, um, Dominican friary in Paris, a man called Hugh of Sancher, and the other in Oxford, a man called Robert Grosstest. And both of them realised that the the moment is ripe for needing to use books differently, needing to be able to look things up in books. Now, why do we need to look things up in books? Well, up until then, um, it was possible really to get by. Uh, the people who did reading um, were able to take their time at it. Most reading happened in the monasteries. Monasteries were isolated communities of monks, um, and monks would be in a monastery all of their lives. They could dedicate their lives to, to reading. In fact, the monastic day um, almost centres around reading. Reading is one of the core daily activities for monks. They would wake up in the middle of the night, say their prayers, do a couple of hours reading. They would go for meals and during the meal, somebody would be reading to them. But the books that they have read to them or the books that reading are drawn from a very, very small library, essentially the Bible and the church fathers. Um, and you have your whole life to read them again and again. But at the start of the 1200s, two new things happen. One is the preaching orders, the friars, uh, the mendicant orders, uh, Franciscans, Dominicans. These are a response to certain heresies, particularly Catharism in the south of France, heresies that have sprung up in the, in the 12th century. Now, in order to stamp out heresy, the church realises that Instead of having your sort of isolated monks, it would be valuable to have friars, people who will preach, people who will live in the cities, live among the people and preach sermons to them. That will stop the people from straying. So friaries are founded um, outside, well, outside Paris, just on the, the city wall of Paris, for example. And friars need to write sermons. And in order to write sermons, you need to use the Bible in a more efficient way. You can't just read it slowly for the rest of your life. You think, I've got to write a sermon. I'm going to write a sermon maybe about rocks. Let me think, what are the instances of rocks? Well, there's, uh, I can't think of one, but if I had an index here, I could look up six instances of rocks. And I say, I'm going to use that one from the Old Testament. Then I'm going to jump forward to that one from the New Testament. And then maybe I'll pivot to this thing. And the sermon's going to be engaging. It's going to have a theme. People are going to relate to this. It will be a well-given um, uh, sermon, have the qualities of, of engagement, almost of entertainment, if you like. Now, the other thing that, that that's comes into existence around about the start of the 13th century is the university. So universities are founded in, in Italy, in France, um, in Oxford. Now, universities, again, require this new efficient way of reading books, particularly for the lecture. If you're going to give a lecture on a subject, you're going to need to uh, break up the book that you're teaching into sort of divisible components. You're going to be able to 
you're going to need to look things up. Your students are going to be able need to be able to look things up, if you like. So in Paris and Oxford, we have preaching and teaching. We have friars and uh, university scholars, all of whom suddenly need to use books in a different way from, from that kind of old monastic way of reading. They need to be able to break the book down. So what happens in Paris is that the friars under um, Hugh uh, take the Bible and they break it down into its words. Every word of the Bible arranged into alphabetical order and for each word a locator pointing to the book and the chapter, all of the books and the chapters in which that word appears. So it's a huge task. They take about 10,000 words, different words that appear in the Bible. They take about 129,000 different locations. Um, but as long as you know the word you're looking for, you can run your finger down the alphabetical list and then find a list of all of the moments it appears. You can jump to those particular moments. It's a, it's a word index to the Bible. In Oxford, we find Robert Grosstest. Now, Grosstest is a really interesting character. He's, he's the absolute polymath of the 13th century. He has read everything. He has read the Bible and the church fathers, but he's also read science. He's interested in Greek thought. He's translated Aristotle. He's even up to date on the latest um, Arabic philosophy. And he has this really kind of encyclopedic grasp of law, theology, science, medicine, everything. He's read everything. And in order to organise that knowledge, then he needs to be able to recall where are the moments that I found certain ideas. So Grosstest draws up a table of about 400 concepts, but 440 concepts or topics. They might be imagination or the Trinity. Um, and each time he comes across one of these topics in his reading, he does a little symbol for it, a kind of emoticon, a little squiggle in the margin of the book. So he writes in the margins of his books, um, identifying, ah, here's one of the things that I'm interested in. Here's one of the few hundred things that I'm interested in. Having marked up his margins, he can then go back, running his finger down them and go, now, where are all the moments that I mention imagination? The symbol for imag imagination is a flower, by the way. And then he can draw up an index. OK, here are all the moments where I mention uh, I've come across the idea imagination. He can have um, a sort of subject index. It might not use the word imagination. In fact, he reads many different languages, um, so, so it'll be different in different things. But as soon as that concept appears, he'll make a little note. OK, St. Augustine mentions it. OK, Genesis mentions it. OK, uh, Aristotle mentions it. And he therefore has a subject index across everything. So it's like it's, it's written on parchment, but it's really like a search engine. It's like Google. It's everything that the guy who's read everything has come across, you can find it in his sort of topic index there. So we've got two models of the index, both created, like I say, round about the year 1230. It really seems that index is sort of manifestation of human need for systematizing and classification mm, of data. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the, the way I put it earlier is, is you have um, a, a data problem when, when data reaches a certain uh, size. Um, it, it, it stops being useful because unless you know how to navigate through it, um, what, what's the point of uh, What's the point of infinity? You know, like, like the, the Argentinian writer uh, Borges has this idea of the infinite library, the library of Babel, where um, every arrangement of, of the 26 letters of the alphabet can produce a book, but um, only a fraction of them, tiny fraction of them are, are, are meaningful. It becomes um, a, a superfluity of, of nonsense, if you like. So we have to know where to find the things that we're looking for, where to find the meaningful things within the the, the sort of morass, within within the, the abyss of big data, if you like. So you already mentioned the way that index uh, can be presented as in alphabetical order. Are mm. there other ways? Can can it be like thematically or chronologically or? It certainly can. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's, uh, um, <laughs> I don't want to be sort of strict about that doesn't count. Um, the thing is, it has to be useful. So, so the, the good thing about alphabetical order is everybody knows it. 
Um, if you have a book that's arranged thematically, where the index is arranged uh, thematically, for example, um, the person who uses it is going to have to be familiar with those themes. Otherwise, um, both columns are kind of impossible to navigate, if you like. So, so really, the um, the great thing about alphabetical order is that we all learn it in order to write. And this this is this goes back to uh, classical times. To to the uh, um, we find uh, tablets where children have written the the letter the order of the letters of the alphabet in in Israel from the ninth century BC and Greek from the sixth century BC. They still haven't been used for anything, and that really happens just. Uh, in the, the early third century BC at the Library of Alexandria, somebody, possibly a man called Callimachus, um, a librarian at the Library of Alexandria, has this idea of, okay, well, everybody knows that thing. Everybody knows the order of the letters of the alphabet. Everybody who can, who can read anyway knows these things because they learned that order in order to learn to read and write. And if I take that thing that everybody knows and use that as a way of ordering the thing that they don't know, which is where to find your scroll, then then we're doing that thing, that, that sort of two-column thing again. On, on the left, the thing that you do know, which will help you to find on a place in the thing that you don't. So alphabetical order sort of becomes uh, instrumentalised in that way in Alexandria, um, yeah, just, just in the early part of the 3rd century BC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So as we move through centuries, how is uh, Index evolving, especially with the huge explosion of knowledge? Well, the really key thing that happens is the um, so we have the index from the 13th century and, and, and people do start to, to, to use them. We find them in history books. We find them in medieval manuscripts. Now, when I say manuscript, what manuscript means is something that has been written by hand. That's the sort of etymology of, of manuscript. Um, everything up until the 1450s was written by hand because the printing press hadn't been invented. So if you have a copy of a book, um, and it's a medieval manuscript, it really is literally a copy. Somebody, probably a monk, has copied it out. It takes a very long time. It's very expensive to copy books out by hand. But the other thing that happens when you copy a book out by hand is the arrangement of text on the page is almost certain to change. When you give somebody a book and say, can you copy this? into another book, um, you hope that they will get the text exactly right. You hope they'll pay attention, make sure they copy the words exactly right. They probably won't copy the, the sort of pagination. They might be copying from a big book into a little book, so there's not as much space on the page in the book they're copying to, or vice versa, they're copying from a little book into a big book. So what takes one page in the original, you can fit several of these onto, onto the page in your copy. So page numbers in the medieval manuscript period, page numbers up until the 1450s are copy specific. They don't work. You and I can have exactly the same book and it's got all the same words in it, but not on the same pages. So an index um, in the late Middle Ages is really just for your own use. It's not particularly shareable, um, or at least if somebody does copy out an index, they need to change all of the locators. They need to change the page numbers or key it to something else like uh, like Bible chapters. I actually found a, a, um, a book in a library in Cambridge, in St. John's College Library in Cambridge from the 1380s. And it's a great big history book in Latin, history of the world. Um, and it has an index. 
And the scribe who has copied it, a man called John Lutton, he signed it at the end. He said, John Lutton has copied this book. And then he goes on to copy the index. And John Lutton, unfortunately, in the 1380s, doesn't really know how an index works. So he copies out the index exactly. And he doesn't realise that he hasn't copied out the pagination. So um, every time he puts a page number, it's the wrong page, page number. It's out by a few. It's a bit like if you have a, a web page and every single link you click takes you to a 404 page not found error. John Lutton, poor fellow, just doesn't realise how an index works and, and that these page numbers need to be sort of recalibrated to the book that he's just copied out. What happens in the 1450s, though, is um, a man called Johannes Gutenberg invents the printing press. Now, you set up letters of type for your book, you ink them up, you put them on the press, and you sort of rub the paper onto the ink. And then you ink them up, you put another piece of paper on, rub the paper onto the ink. Those two pieces of paper are going to be identical. The pages of type are going to be identical. So suddenly, if you and I have a printed book, and it's come from the same print run, then your page 17 looks exactly like my page 17. We can start to sort of use, we can start to be on the same page to use that uh, phrase again. So books start to become almost identical, apart from a few kind of small typos that you might find. Suddenly, the index can start to use page numbers as its, as its sort of chief locator, rather than Bible chapters or, or paragraph numbers or whatever. Suddenly, every book, as long as you printed page numbers in the corner, can have an index. So in the 16th century, about 50, 60 years after the invention of print, suddenly you find indexes in every kind of book. You find indexes in uh, cookery books, in hymn books, in history books, in um, oh, every kind of religious book. Um, there's a famous poem um, Italian poem uh, in England we call it Orlando, Orlando Furioso um, and there's a moment in this where a knight has been given a spell book by a fairy and suddenly he needs to cast a spell and the poem says he knew exactly how to find the right spell, he looked it up in the index um, so by, by 1516 when Ariosto writes Orlando Furioso even fictional spell books have got indexes, the index has become completely kind of ubiquitous. So where is index nowadays, especially when it comes to printed books? Well, this is really interesting. Now, uh, um, in printed books, we, we still expect an index, not in a novel. We can talk later about certain types of novels that do have indexes, but usually novels don't. Um, but nonfiction should. Good nonfiction, whether it's a memoir or a history book or whatever, textbook, uh, cookbook, should have an index. That's how we use nonfiction. We look things up in it. Um, now, this is still, uh, in most instances, prepared by a human, a professional indexer. Sure, you can, if you have it on your Kindle, you can control F if you're looking for a word. Um, but actually, a good human indexer can do things that the computer can't. I'll give you an example. Um, say you have a, a book on art, on the history of art, and there's a section where the book is talking about Jackson Pollock, the American, mid-century American painter, Jackson Pollock. Now, of course, the index will say Pollock, comma, Jackson, and all the page numbers. But a good index um, will probably also, under the A, say abstract expressionism, and then all the page numbers as well, because it will know that the person who's using it might be looking up, might be looking up this phrase, even if it doesn't appear in the book. OK, that concept, Pollock, and the type of art he represents. Well, I might be looking up that genre, that type of um, that movement, rather than the name itself. So a human can intuit what's going to be useful. I'll give you another example. Say a political book. In this, in my country, in the United Kingdom, in the last five years, we've had three different prime ministers. We've had Theresa May, David Cameron. Oh, I've got the order wrong. David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson have all been prime minister. If you wrote a history book of the last five or six years in British politics and the book at some point said and the prime minister said such and such now an indexer a human indexer would know whether that moment should go under Cameron David or May Teresa or Johnson Boris the other thing is that in this country anyway we often use um, what we call metonymy to talk about uh, politics instead of saying 
Boris Johnson said such and such, we'd say number 10 said this or a spokesman for Downing Street said this. So, so number 10 is a synonym or a metonym for the prime minister. Now, as you're searching through that with your control F, it's not very useful. You don't want to have to do control. You don't want to have to know that you're searching for the White House when what we really mean is is Joe Biden or whatever. An indexer can solve all of those things, put, put all of the information in the right place. Computers still can't do that. So in my book, uh, Index History of That, um, I've got two indexes. I've got one um, compiled by indexing software. So there is indexing software these days. Um, but I wanted to show that it's not yet that good. It's certainly not as good or as useful as a well-constructed index compiled by humans. So in my book, I've got the computerized one, um, which is a bit of a joke, really. Um, it's not very useful at all. Um, it just pulls words and phrases from the text. It shows you all the, all the moments that I use the word alas. <laughs> You're never going to want to use that. Um, whereas the one by Paula, by, by Paula Clark Bain, who's a professional indexer um, from from Manchester in the north of England, um, is a masterpiece. It's funny. It's full of Paula's personality. It's very useful. It um, manages, I think, to intuit all of the ways that readers will want to use the book, all of the things they want to look up. Now, that's its first job. But its second job is that I think it really kind of mirrors the style of the book it's quite playful it's fun it, it 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 takes a subject that could have been a very dry book and sort of recalibrates it to be fun paula's index is is is, is an echo of that it's fun um so i do think that there's a uh, when we talk about so what should an index look like in a book these days um we still need humans to produce good a useful uh, indexes, but but B indexes that go beyond in indexes that that actually also have the sort of personality of the subjective intellect that created them. This is so interesting that index itself it really requires this understanding of vernacular expressions. So, for example, as you gave uh, an example of uh, number ten, or I can say mm. hairy potatoes when I mean my guinea pigs. So maybe a computer <laughs> would not uh, know how to no, differentiate that- them. That's exactly right. Um, it also requires expertise. Now, if you do, if, if you write a medical textbook, it, of course, textbooks absolutely need indexes. Textbook, you know, one of the types of book where it's very important that you can look things up. Um, but uh, different indexes have def- different uh, expertises. So um, a medical textbook will need an indexer who has a background in medicine. Science books need somebody who has a background and understanding. When I did a book on French literature, I needed an indexer who spoke French because otherwise there was a danger that they would miss things that were, although the book was in English, there was some quotation in French. They need a little bit of a background in in 20th century French literature just to kind of resolve these ambiguities, if you like. Similarly, when a friend of mine and I did a book on um, early modern uh, British literature, even though it was British, a lot of it turns out to be in Latin. So we got an indexer who had um, a classics degree because she was then unable, she was then able to unpack moments where, yeah, where, where the Latin was important, um, if you like. So so indexers have specialisms, they have expertise. Um, like you say, for for, for knowing the subject for knowing the vernaculars knowing okay well if they say this that belongs under this head word so how in general you decide what to include and to what depth you have to go in the index like taking in, in as an example medical literature that's a really good question I, do you know what the trouble is i'm not really qualified to answer that um that would come um in a discussion between the author and the indexer, um, or sometimes the author and the publisher and the indexer, what depth to go into. Um, but it really, um, it varies from book to book and it, and it will be something that that's sort of hashed out um, in the early stages of, of kind of taking on the contract, if you like. So why is fiction not uh, generally indexed and uh, something like poetry as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the easiest way to imagine it is is to think about the way that we read fiction. Now, with a novel, most cases, um, you read a novel in a linear way and you read it once. Most novels that I read, I start on page one, I read through to the end, and then 
I put it on the shelf or I take it to the charity shop and and that's it. Um, so imagine if you have a if you have a long straight road with no turnings, with no entrances or, or exits, you don't need any road signs, you don't need any street signs because um, there's only one way you can go. Um, an index is, is kind of like the, 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 the street signs or the roadmap, the thing that says if you're if you're entering here um, or if you're if you're going to Birmingham, Zurich, whatever, you need to take this turning. But if you have a very long straight road, you don't need to. Um, so because of the way that we read novels, they don't need them. Um, we, like I say, we read them once um, from front to back. There is a category of novels that we read differently, though. And I suppose that that's what I call the uber classic um, the novels in in, uh, in English. They'd be things like the novels of Jane Austen or um, in the 19th century, we would have said Walter Scott in French Proust. And all of these, or another example more recently is, is Lord of the Rings. All of these things have got indexes because... Um, Readers, sub- subsequent readers, Jane Austen didn't didn't compile her own index, but have deemed okay. I'll always go back to this. People are always reading and rereading. People want to know what's the where, where's the bit where Emma goes on the picnic to Box Hill, um, or whatever. Here, you see, going back to that analogy of, of the roadmap. Here, you read something, but then you're going back to it. You have a you want to know what's the entry point. Where do I take the turning for? this moment or this scene. Now, the classic novels then, the novels that we don't just read once, the novels that we use, return to, we break up into morsels, um, they often do have indexes produced for them. So like I say, there's an index to to Proust, uh, index to The Lord of the Rings, and so on. So now thinking about the electronic media, so you you already Mm. mentioned that some of your students use the e-readers. So how does index fit in? Well, (laughs) <laughs> um, not particularly well. Okay, so you have this this word index. You can always find what you want as long as you know exactly the terms it's expressed in. But as I said, with with say abstract expressionism, I'll give you another example. Uh, um, uh, one I often use is um, in the Bible. I, I'd say the most famous story about forgiveness in the Bible. What's the most famous story about forgiveness? It's what we call the parable of the prodigal son. The trouble is that particular story doesn't use the word forgiveness and doesn't use the word mercy and it doesn't even use the word prodigal. So if you're trying to jump through a document looking for that, then the uh, uh, the digital index, the sort of control F function, the, the, the search bar, isn't going to um, find what you want. So when we read digitally, in a way we're well served. We're well served by word indexes. Um, but very often subject indexes are um, really just static versions of, of I think, um, very often when a book is converted from a hardback book to um, an e-reader, e-reader version, the index, if it's included at all, is just basically taken as a, as a static thing, a screenshot with page numbers. But of course, page numbers aren't don't apply on a Kindle. It's not... Um, it's not actually very useful because you can make your screen bigger or smaller. So, um, yeah, there are there are problems when we want to go beyond text search, if you like, with with digital indexing at the moment. So, is index also being applied now in more interactive media, for example, say on Netflix when you're watching a movie where you can choose your own paths, for example. You can go to the index and choose the way you want to watch that. Can it be used yeah. in this way? Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. I did a thing at a school um, a couple of years ago. I went to a school and there were seven or eight year olds. And we were just talking about indexes um, with them. And I said, does anyone know what an index is? And they all knew. I was really impressed. They all knew. Um, but I said, what is it? And the example that most of them gave was exactly what you're talking about. Actually, this must have been more like five or six years ago because it was still it was still in the in the days of DVDs. But they said, when you want to go to that scene, you're watching one of your favourite films and you want to jump to that scene, you go to the index. So um, so absolutely, yeah, it, it's still a, a way of, of navigating other media. Um, I don't Is that the same for, for, uh, um, for downloads as well? Yeah, perhaps in some, in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that uh, sort of this explosion of big data nowadays require new ways we think about indexing information? 
well, yes, although we don't have to do it. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the experts are doing it. I've had some really fascinating and uh, uh, interesting correspondence with the people who are actually designing those um, indexes, uh, that the way that we navigate um, large, uh, large libraries of documents, for example. Um, so, yes, the funny thing is, though, when I talk about this book, promote this book, Index, a History of the... Um, I always start by saying... Now, you know that search engines are indexes. You, you might think this is a obscure topic and, and we don't read books like that anymore. And what do I care about monks? But you are using an index all the time when you want to look up where's that restaurant? How many points did it score? Blah, blah, blah. Um, we're, we're constantly, constantly using indexes. But I have to say that because I think people don't realise that this is this is absolutely the age of the index. So in answer to your question, yeah. Um, the, the, the our, our ways of navigating big data are precisely, specifically indexical, but a lot of that is is being done for us. We don't even need to know that they're indexes. Um, it takes somebody like me to point it out and go, "Hey, this is actually an index. This is a, a eight hundred year old invention invented by sort of friars in Paris." Um, so it's uh, it's been taken out of our hands, if you like don't need to know. So how do you see this area evolving in the future? I, I see it getting uh, better. I've been talking about the the way that we still need human indexes because um, beyond word searching, um, search engines currently aren't that, that good at intuiting what we want and if we don't know the exact word for it. Um, but I'm being a little bit unfair because they are getting better at it. Google is, is, is leading the way in, in actually it's not just a te text search. Um, there was an example um, if you uh, are there's a slang word I, I think I might have got this right if you're a fisherman in uh, the, uh, the northeastern states of, of United King uh, of the United States cow c-o-w um, can be a slang word for oh, I can't, a certain type of bream for example. Now if you type in um, how to catch a cow? Um, mostly, uh, it will uh, a search engine will I don't know maybe bring you up something about farming. But if you uh, in certain contexts, if you put fishing, how to catch a cow, um, it can intuit. Okay, now this isn't just well, I'm not just going to bring every instance of this word, but there's the uh, um, coming together of this word and this context of fishing and cow. I think they probably need these. Results. Do you see what I mean? There's, there's um, the thing that I was saying humans can do, which is know that number 10 means the prime minister, prime minister and stuff like that. At the moment, search engines aren't great at, but they're only getting better at it. It's not it's not an impossible problem. So um, so that sort of intuition about the uh, ambiguity um, in, in language, um, machines will learn to cope with better. And what, where does that leave the, the sort of uh, um, professional back of book indexer? Well, I think we still, people have really liked Paula's index to my book, that the, the, the way that it's stamped with her humanity, the way that it's stamped with her wit. Now, that's not something that, that's necessarily going to be replicated. So I suppose I think about the long-term future of the, the book indexers a bit like the, um, the long-term future of certain types of beer sure the breweries can can um take over most of the pubs but there's still going to be a niche for the craft index for the craft beer for the one where you have to if you're in the know you will really appreciate the fact that it's been done expertly the fact that it has particular flavors to it so what discoveries along your journey to writing your book index a history of the surprised you the most well, i think the the, the the big one was that anyone would want to read it. Uh, like, like I said earlier, it was envisaged initially as a, an academic book, a niche book for um, a very small number of book historians. Um, it was an enormous surprise that uh, people approached me and said, you know what, people might be interested in that. Could you slightly change the way that you voice it? And then Penguin. Penguin are a wonderful, um, big name. In, in, in my country, I was so uh, um, sort of blown away and delighted and 
proud when uh, when I was approached by them. That was that was an enormous surprise. I'm sorry, it's, it, it feels like uh, um, a slightly egotistical answer to your question, but but I think the biggest surprise constantly along the way writing this was that um, was that people were supportive and enthusiastic, and the audience for it um, was not at all what I envisaged. was was far broader and more humorous and jolly and engaged and uh, and excited for me than than anything that I had previously done in academia. So did you have to go through many archival volumes for the research of this book? Goodness me, did I? Yes. <laughs> many, many, many. So I had a long, long stint in, in Oxford. I spent three years in the, the library in Oxford. I had an office in the library in Oxford. Similar thing in Cambridge for another year where they gave me an office in the library and they gave me the keys to the stack so I could go and let myself in and um, look at all of the books or, or manuscripts that I wanted. I could take them back to my office, which which is a very um, kind of rare privilege. I also got um, uh, funding to go to the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. Spent a month in the States, similarly ploughing through thousands, literally thousands of um, mostly early printed books. I did the, the medieval manuscripts mostly in this country. Um, but over um, six or seven years, it's a very, very archival project. Really, the the, um, the thing that I've enjoyed, but also one of the things that I'm most proud of is that it's a, um, very, very much a kind of first-hand archival project, the result of um, really just sifting through an unimaginable uh, number of, of um, early books. Oh boy, I, I suppose there were no control F in your case. No, that's right. Oh, I'll tell you my favourite one. So so one early book, this is the uh, um, first printed page number. So I was talking to you earlier about what a difference it makes when printing comes along, because then every page uh, or, or a particular page uh, in every copy of an edition looks the same and you can put a number then you can use a page number to say uh, to do a footnote or to do an index now the first printed page number is in a sermon from Cologne printed in 1470 um, and it's uh, it doesn't look like anything it's not a great big fancy book like a, um, even like a, a Shakespeare first folio uh, um, uh, if you if you want to handle one of them in a library, you have to jump through an awful an awful lot of hoops. But the first printed page number I could just ask for, and they brought it to my desk, and it was sitting on my desk next to my laptop and my bottle of water. That was a a mind blowing archival experience. I think thinking, gosh, every, everything that we do, every time we do a footnote with a page number, or um, have a reading group, or that thing that I was talking about earlier, when when we run a class at university and we say, can everyone turn to page such and such all comes back to the little pamphlet that was on my desk um, <laughs> next to my bottle of water. That was an astonishing, mind-blowing kind of archival experience. Why are we not uh, treating this book with more awe? Why is it not in museums next to the Gutenberg Bible or, or the Shakespeare First Folio? It's an astonishing innovation there. Hope you had that Instagram photo with it, <laughs> with a piece of history. <laughs> I need to do that. You're exactly right. That's uh, next time at the Bodleian. I'm going to uh, next time I'm at the Bodleian. I'm going to do that with my double thumbs up next to the <laughs> <laughs> printed page number. Well, this has been a truly delightful discussion. So, can you tell us what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project? Well, that's a really good question. Um, it needs a little bit of fleshing out, but I think it's going to be. A, a book about literary eccentrics in um, British literature. So I mentioned that I did a PhD on French literature, on, on these funny people, the Ulipo, who do uh, uh, avant-garde books, slightly strange avant-garde books. Um, the Ulipo and the Surrealists before them really excavated a, a canon, if you like, of literary outsider artists in French literature. So you have your main canon, you do a French literature degree and you'll learn about Racine and Moliere and Proust um, but alongside them since the Surrealists started to dig into it you have these wacky writers people who did strange things and weren't, weren't um, famous in their lifetimes. Now um, funnily enough we don't really have that in English literature and the French I think think of us as, as the nation of, of eccentrics and yet we haven't done anything to uh, to produce a canon of literary eccentrics who would be 
the outsider artists, not even avant-garde, because in order to be avant-garde, you need to know what the guard is that you're en avant of. But um, but the uh, the people kind of working in obscurity, producing strange experiments in, in the last five, six hundred years of English literature. So I think my next project is going to be a, a history of English literary eccentricity. That sounds super exciting. I hope you come uh, back and talk to us about it once you're done. Thank you very much. So what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about what you do and also your book? Oh, well, the um, the best way to, to find information about the book is to type into a search engine of your choice, uh, Dennis Duncan Index. And that should bring you up. If you're in the States, that should bring you up with the WW Norton page. Or if you're uh, on this side of the, the Atlantic, the, uh, the Penguin Books um, page. Um, it might also bring you up with with a link to my um, university webpage, where you can see other things that I've worked on. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, I'm always going to be promoting search. So the best way to find out about it is to type it into a search engine. Brilliant. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me.